Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So the Bible includes a number of calling stories. Sometimes God will call someone before that someone is a someone. In that case, God has a chat with the parents about the kid that they're going to have. Think about Samson and John the Baptist. And there's at least one case where God talks to the parent first and then to the person being called who happens to be out watching the sheep. That, of course, is David. But then most of them are like the one we read today. The individual is an adult. And when that happens, typically, there's a lot of pushback from the adult being called. God gets a lot of pushback here. Um, You can understand why, first of all. This calling totally disrupts whatever plans they had for their lives. But second, uh, the main reason, of course, is because whatever God is calling them to do is a little overwhelming. Um, And so they want us to just say, look, you need 
to look somewhere else. It's interesting, is that there are no stories in scriptures in the scriptures that suggest that this pushback is ever successful. Uh, no one ever manages to get God to find someone else. You know, there's no, and behold, the Lord declared unto Randy, fine, if you're going to be such a whiner about it, forget I said anything. Yeesh. Nope, that verse isn't there. Nope, God persists through the pushback. I think part of the reason that God pushes through the the, the, or God persists through the pushback is because pushback isn't necessarily a bad sign, right? Um, confidence is great. Uh, complete certainty, having no doubts, typically is a problem. Uh, they tend, those sorts of people tend not to just see themselves as called by God, but it's as if they see themselves as a God. And ultimately, you do need somebody who knows that they are dependent on God to pull off what God's calling them to do. Moses asks, who am I that I should do this? Of course, it's not about who Moses is. It's about who God is. The fact is, you know, if God wanted to, God could send the burning bush to go liberate the Israelites. It's not all that implausible. We had two bushes lead our country. Okay. All right. Wait. Ha ha. Good. Good. I hope the recording picked that up. All right. Again, uh, what Moses needs to know is that it's not about him. He's not on his own. Who am I that I should do this? Well, God's response is is to say, you're not doing it alone. The good news is I will go with you. Now, to help assure Moses that God will go, is going with him, he offers, God offers Moses various signs. Uh, the, there are a couple that aren't mentioned, in, that, that get mentioned later. One, Moses sticks his hand in his cloak, comes out leprous, puts it back in, it's clean, throws down a staff, turns into a snake, picks it up, it uh, turns into a staff again. But there's one before that. And the writer Kathleen uh, Norris makes a great point about this first sign that God offers, which is, it's not particularly reassuring. Listen again to what God says. This shall be the sign for you, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. In other words... You want a sign that I'll go with you? Okay, go do it. Come back here, and you'll realize I was with you the whole time. I mean, that's particularly reassuring, right? It still requires you to just go. Uh, but that is actually often how it works in our own lives when God calls us to do things. We don't know how God will bring it about ahead of time. We just have to go and do it. And then, looking back, Realize, oh, God was with me the whole time. Now, so it is about God. At the same time, Moses is a remarkable choice. Again, last week we read this story of how Pharaoh's daughter discovered the infant Moses hiding among the reeds and decided to raise him. You know, and on the surface, oh, well, this sort of sounds like the plot to like the musical Annie, 
right? Moses escapes a hard-knock life to become the adopted son of Princess Warbucks. But there's a dark element to this story, right? So that would, it would be consistent with the story of Annie if we imagine that Annie became little orphan Annie because her parents worked at the asbestos factory owned by Warbucks Industry, right? Because Moses, yeah, he strikes it rich, but he's in the house of the oppressor, the very people that were the threat to his life. Exodus does not tell us anything about what, that, what life in the house of the oppressor uh, as a member of the oppressed people, what that was like. You know, actually, in verse 10, Moses is still a wailing infant, and then it goes to verse 11, and it tells us he's an adult. So we don't know what it means for him to have grown up in there. We do get a sense of the tension, though, that that created for Moses. I mean, that he occupies two different worlds, and he's at home in neither one. And this tension kind of comes to a head when he witnesses this Egyptian slave uh, driver uh, beating the Hebrew. It's at that moment he realizes he feels as though he must claim one. Who is he going to claim his identity as a Hebrew, or is he? And if he does that, does that mean he's going to have to abandon his uh, the world of, of, of privilege and power that he has grown up within? Right? So he, he tries to find a, inner, a way of intervening that allows him to hold both of those things. And that way of doing that is, it, the text says, he looks to see if anyone's watching, and then he kills the Egyptian uh, slave master. Right? So he has, uh, and, he, and he managed to have 24, about 24 hours to live under the illusion, ah, I've done it, I've demonstrated my commitment to the Hebrew people, and yet I'm going to be able to keep my position of privilege and power. But no, next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting. And, you know, having just seen uh, the Egyptian beating uh, Hebrews, it, she's like, how is it that you two are fighting? Come on. And the person, uh, one of the Hebrews says, who made you leader over us? You're going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? So he thought he had intervened in a way that would enable him to, uh, to continue to occupy both of those worlds. And no, it's the opposite. Here's more of the irony we talked about last week. It ha- he tends it to do this, and it does the opposite. He has to flee the whole thing altogether. He occupies neither world. He outgoes and lives in Midian, middle of nowhere, the Midian of nowhere. Because Pharaoh, of course, finds out that that Moses has done this, and Pharaoh sees that as a deep betrayal of the world that Moses was raised within. But on the other, I mean, on one hand, that it it definitely is that. On the other hand, it reflects a bit of the world that Moses was raised within, right? Because what does Pharaoh do when Pharaoh has a problem? Well, he kills it. You know, overpopulation, kill. Moses, same. He has sort of a pharaoh mindset. That shows you where it gets it. Last week's text, too, had us 
examining the story in which it appears as though Pharaoh is determined to sort of wrestle control of Israel's story away from them and from the God who made God's covenant with them. And the story of the infant Moses winding up in the house of Pharaoh just illustrates just how that didn't work out. Pharaoh brings the liberator into his house. And it's an affirmation that the covenant maker is still the storyteller. But here, we have a passage in which Moses himself seems ready to derail the story. Who made you leader of us? asked the unnamed Hebrew. And we had thought God. I mean, we just read this whole incredible story last week. But now Moses is a murderer. His foolish intervention has put him back in this, basically in the same position he was in as an infant. Once again, he's a fugitive. Once again, Pharaoh wants him dead. And last time, that story resulted in him uh, gaining a position of power and privilege. But now, it resulted in him being in Midian, middle of nowhere, the Midian of nowhere. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh could not wrestle the story away from God and nor can Moses' failures wrestle the story away from God. In fact, God makes those failures part of the story. Um, I take great comfort in that. You know, I was just thinking, it's, it was about 10 years ago when the story of my own life took a dramatic turn. My marriage was falling apart, and so I requested this six-week absence for, uh, leave of absence from my former church. And I tried to offer the, the church assurances that, that when the six weeks were up, things would be good, the story would continue, they may, may even be better than ever. There were things I needed to deal with, and I was going to deal with them. And as part of that, I, I was, saw this therapist, and this therapist, as I was relaying my situation. He said, you know, it's not my job to help you keep your job. It's not my job to help you save your marriage. He said, my commitment is to you and what's best for you. And at the time, I could not imagine what could be best for me that didn't involve saving my marriage and keeping my job. Without those things, I would be lost. It wouldn't take long, though, for me to realize uh, that I wasn't going to keep my job or save my marriage. And I had been clinging so desperately to those things, so stupidly, I, I certainly didn't murder anybody, but I wasn't helping anybody either, least of all myself. I had to let go. And knowing that I had to let it go did not make that any easier. It was horrible. There were times when I was sure my life was, was uh, going to hell in a bucket. But as it turned out, my life was not going to hell in the bucket. My life was going to Midian in a bucket. Into the wilderness. You know, it's not a great time. Uh, Midian does not have a department of tourism. Uh, it's not for vacationers. It's for fugitives and failures. You don't plan to go there. You wind up there because all your plans fell apart. But the big surprise is that the wilderness of Midian is holy ground. You go to Midian to flee your life, 
and discover that exactly that's where you meet the giver of life. You know, I agree with Kathleen Norris that this so-called sign that God offers is a bit terrifying. You know, do it, and that'll prove that I'm with you. But I think that sign means more when you spent some time in Midian. After all, Midian is itself sort of a sign. It's a sign that you yourself aren't a great storyteller of your own life. So, yeah, having to trust in God, that's, that's a little scary. But thinking that your life is your own, that's a total disaster. You know, eventually what happens when, I mean, so Moses obviously uh, responds to this call. And over the course of Exodus, God and Moses become friends. Uh, that's, that's what the text says. There's that remarkable verse that says they talk to one another as one talks to a friend. And I don't think what they mean by that is it's certainly that they're not always talking friendly. They're not always chummy. Uh, God and Moses have it out a couple of times. God gets frustrated. Uh, God is ready to, to he's, God's about had it with Israel. And, and Moses, while he doesn't re- refer to what's said here in Midian, it's clear that what's said here in Midian has informed Moses' thinking. You know, because that's how he re- responds to God in these situations. You have to go with us. You cannot leave, abandon us. This is your story. You're the storyteller. I learned that Moses' trip to Midian probably took him two weeks. I, you know, to me, my trip to Midian, I got there, took about a year to realize I was in Midian. I think it varies from person to person. But we're all... We're all going to end up there. It's not a place you can avoid. Not in this life. You may end up there because of your own failure. You may end up there through no fault of your own. But in this life, we all are going to spend some time in Midian. Because there's nothing we have that can't be lost. But even as we confront that, we got to keep our head up. And I don't mean that just to be a positive attitude. I mean, keep, keep alert. Because even in the middle of what seems like nothing, even when you think your story has got no more place to go, Midian may be a wilderness, but it's in that wilderness that shrubs catch fire and don't burn out. It's in that wilderness that the ground vibrates with a holiness that registers on the Richter scale. That you're going to just want to only experience barefoot because it's so holy. What God may call us to may be scary. It's not easy having God as our storyteller, having to learn to let go. But don't worry, God offers you a sign, a sign that you don't go alone. Do what God's calling you to do. And when you've done it, boom, you'll know. God's been the storyteller the whole time. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, amen.